Tēnā koutou no mai haere mai, welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. Today, the all-important seat of Northland. New Zealand First support has been languishing, but if they don't make 5% in next month's election, can Shane Jones win a seat and keep them in Parliament? The results of an exclusive Q&A Colmar Brunton poll. Northlanders are a bit maverick, can be a little bit rogue um, with their vote, and that's a good thing. Nobody should be complacent. Then, as China continues to crack down on Uyghurs in Xinjiang province, a Uyghur New Zealander and top scholar goes public for the first time, calling on the Chinese government to release her brother from jail. If you were in my brother, I would do the same to help you, because how can I see myself as a human being if I don't take any action? That story shortly. But first, to Northland. With New Zealand First consistently polling well below the 5% party vote threshold, Northland is shaping up as a critical seat in next month's election. Shane Jones has been hoping to defeat the incumbent MP, Nationals' Matt King. This morning we can share with you the results from an exclusive Colmar Brunton poll of voters in Northland. Have a look. Nationals' Matt King, the incumbent, is comfortably ahead on 46%. Labor's Willow Jean Prime is on 31%. That's a good result for her. Labor only got 21% of the votes in the 2017 election. Shane Jones of New Zealand First is on 15%. And making a showing, the Green candidate on 3% and the new Conservative candidate on 2%. The party vote is also really interesting. Keep in mind this is traditionally a safe national seat, but look at that party vote. Labor is on 41%, National on 38 Act on 8, New Zealand first, 7, the Greens 4.7 and the New Conservatives just under 2%. Now some information about that Colmar Brunton poll. 503 eligible Northland voters were polled between the 29th of July and the 4th of August. 402 of those were polled by landline, 101 were polled online. 11% were undecided or didn't want to say who they would vote for. And there's a margin of error of plus or minus 4.3%. Now, we were planning on speaking with New Zealand First candidate Shane Jones. He committed to the interview on Q&A and we spoke to him several times to organise logistics, but late last night he pulled out of the interview saying he had another commitment this morning. But we did speak to him. He said he needs to get the political jackhammer out. His message to Northlanders is, if you want New Zealand First back in Parliament, vote for Shane or New Zealand First on the party vote. He admits, though, it's going to be an uphill climb. We're going to speak with the two leading candidates in Northland shortly, but first we wanted to get a sense of the issues most concerning Northlanders in this year's election. Here's Fiona Owen. And a brand new wolf at Rangi Point. Handing out the goodies in Omapere, $1.8 million from the Provincial Growth Fund to upgrade four wharves around the Hokianga. Good news for tourist operators. My MP vote is going to go to Shane. I made my mind up before I even heard this, actually. OK, but so he hasn't bought your vote then? No, he hasn't. Definitely, I promise you, he hasn't bought my vote. I just think it's very negative and cynical politics to taint a $3 billion fund as something as tawdry as um, simply enticing votes. 20% of the $3 billion provincial growth fund has been committed to Northland projects a region of high economic and social need. But Ohio's butcher, Basil Stewart, questions the timing. The two roundabouts are getting done now, one at Waipapa and one at Pukatona Junction, they're long overdue. They've been promised us for years and years, and now all of a sudden, come election time, what happens? Things get done. 
once after election, we get forgotten again. Election time comes up and then, not just Shane Jones, but all politicians are running around mad because they can see that the election is coming up and their job is to get back in. And I understand that. Hey! How are you? Traditionally, Northland general electorate's been a national stronghold. Then there was Winston Peters' surprise win in the 2015 by-election. Last election, National's Matt King snatched it back from New Zealand first, but with a very slim margin of 1,390 votes. Against Winston Peters, though, Shane Jones is a different, uh, different kettle of fish. Over in Moirewa, Labour's candidate Willow Jean Prime is pressing the flesh in her hometown. Last election, she trailed way behind New Zealand first. Northlanders, uh, but Maverick can be a little bit rogue um, with their vote, and that's a good thing. Nobody should be complacent. Strong sense among people that things are getting done. These locals now have free vocational training and social work to counsel Northlanders with addiction and mental health issues. A few things we've been waiting for for a long time and they are sort of happening. I do wonder where all the money's coming from, That's, uh, but because we're not used to these things happening so quickly. I mean, I, I like the railway idea, I like the port idea. So what else do Northlanders want from their MP? Decent roads. And infrastructure. Jobs. Can't sit on the welfare forever. You've got to have jobs, something to do, feed your family. Back in the Hokianga, Shane Jones's campaign team is wearing their boss's mantra. I quite like Shane Jones. I think he's, yeah, he's a good man. National's voting base is in Kirikiri, a wealthy part of Northland. Who are you going to give your vote to this election? Mr King. Mr King, absolutely. Mr King? Yes. yes. Yeah, absolutely. And why is that? Because he has um, a farming background. He has a police background. He's got a sunny background this morning. Let's go to Matt King now, who is Nationals candidate in Northland. Our poll, of course, shows him with 46% support in the electorate vote. Kia ora, Matt. Thanks for being with us. You will be pretty happy, I expect, with those poll results. Oh, good morning, Jack. Yeah, I'm, I'm heartened by it, but I'm taking nothing for granted. That was only 500 people polled, so you're a fool if you, uh, if you rest on your laurels. A significant difference, though, between you and the Labour candidate, but particularly with you and New Zealand First, Shane Jones. What do you put that down to? Oh, look, I've been working really hard since the last election. I've been in campaign mode since uh, the day after the election, and... and um, you know, I'm hearing it on the ground, it's the feedback I'm getting is good, but like you say, you, the, the only real poll is election day and I'm working really hard towards that. Matt, everyone gets good feedback on the ground, you know how this works. Let, let's look at some of the promises that have been made to voters in Northland, because New Zealand First has promised voters in Northland a lot. National hasn't even committed to moving Auckland's port north to Northland. Why do you think you are connecting with voters if these poll results are to be believed? I personally think the Northland voters aren't fooled by this. They're not stupid. They can see what's going on. They can see the, uh, the slush fund, and, and uh, it's not working for them. It's not working for New Zealand First. Plus, also, I've got some great staff up here, and I'm working on the ground um, with constituents uh, every day, and I've had some really good successes and um, really harrowing um, st stories that, of constituents that have come to me, and we've been able to help them. So that's part of an electorate MP's job, and I've been doing that to the best of my ability. To be clear, do you think New Zealand First is trying to buy support? 
Oh, absolutely. It's a no-brainer. That's exactly what they're doing. But uh, Northlanders won't fall for that. They didn't in the past and they won't again. Do you personally support moving Auckland's port north? Look, I'm supportive of walking before we can run and um, I'm supporting the four-lane highway and we need that four-lane highway. That's the number one piece of infrastructure that will grow economic growth in Northland, so I'm supporting that. Um, if, if the business case stacks up, absolutely I support growth in Northland and, and if that means moving the port and it stacks up, absolutely. But there's a lot of other things that I'd rather see the money spent on before that. We have studies up the wazoo. I mean, there's a study every which way you look regarding Auckland's port moving north. So, so from what you've seen so far, you don't think the business case stacks up? Absolutely not. The, the, the one that was reported by, written by Wayne Brown is, is just a report that's been bought and paid for by, the, the uh, and in my view, New Zealand First to, uh, to give them the answer they want. Every other study doesn't say move to Northport. But, hey, I'm, I'm all for supporting Northport's growth and expansion it to, the foot, to its maximum footprint, and, and, and we can certainly do that and grow jobs in Northland. I just don't think that moving the port from Auckland to Northport, lock, stock and barrel, is, is, is going to work out. It doesn't uh, stack up, in my view. Matt, I just want to take a quick look at the party vote. It's really interesting from this poll to note Labor's growth is a big, big swing compared to previous elections. So Labor was at 30% in Northland in the 2017 election. According to our poll, they're at 41% party support in Northland now. National's gone from 46 in 2017 to 38 now. What do you put that down to? Oh, look, there's a bit of a wave of um, support behind Labour at the moment, and that's reflected in that poll result, but it's only 500 people. Um, I, and New Zealand First have lost support as well, so that's a concern for me, and I'm going to be working really hard to get the party vote up in Northland, because it's the party vote that decides the government, so that's, I'll, be, I'll be focusing on that as well. All right, thanks for your time this morning. That is Nationals Northland candidate Matt King. Labor's candidate Willow Jean Prime is here after the break and our panel will give us their analysis. Then, immigration was a hot-button issue at the last election, but with our borders closed for now, will our population keep growing? And what's the future for migrants wanting to come here? And later, former Prime Minister Jim Bolger with a warning in these uncertain times. Yesterday's not going to return. We have to prepare ourselves and the leaders... Hokimai and all, welcome back to Q&A. Willow Jean Prime is Labour's candidate in Northland in next month's election. Tēnā koe, welcome to Q&A. Kia ora, tēnā koe, Jack. Willow Jean, what do you make of those results, especially the electorate poll result? At 31%, you'd be pretty pleased? Yes, I am. Uh, it was really pleasing to see um, that there is a, a level of a huge level of support there, not only for um, myself as the candidate, but also for the Labour Party. Uh, it's the first time in recent history that the Labour Party has uh, experienced um, uh, being ahead of national um, in the polls up here. So I'm really pleased about that. And also as a candidate, um, this is about a 10% increase on the poll, um, the election result from the last election so I'm pleased by that but I'm not taking anything for granted I know that there is a lot of work to do did you expect to be ahead of Shane Jones I, I didn't expect uh, anything um, in terms of how Northlanders might be thinking and feeling uh, heading into this election I never take anything for granted um, it is 
really pleasing to see uh, that people are obviously supporting uh, what this government has been doing and, and also my advocacy for Northland. So I'm, I'm pleased by that result. Shane Jones has given us a pretty direct message this morning. He says that if New Zealanders and Northlanders want New Zealand First back into Parliament, back in Parliament, they either need to support him or they need to get New Zealand First above 5% in the party vote. I know you've been asked this before, but if it comes down to it, would you personally be prepared to step back to allow Shane Jones a better chance at winning the Northland seat? No, the Prime Minister has been really clear, um, our leader Jacinda Ardern, that we are running a two-tick campaign here in Northland and in fact in all electorates. Uh, and so that's what I have been saying, that's what I'm out here to um, present to Northlanders is uh, that I am an option um, in terms of a local candidate uh, and also to gain their, the privilege of representing them uh, as well as the party vote um, so that we can return a Jacinda Ardern-led Labour government. Willow G, we got a sense from our story that a lot of voters in Northland feel like politicians only care about them when it's election time. If New Zealand First isn't there post-September, what will Labor do for people in Northland? So I am a really um, local and active and involved uh, member of parliament. I try to get out amongst our communities as much as I can. We do spend a lot of time in Wellington. Uh, that's where the advocacy is done. But I try to uh, make the most of the opportunity to get around Northland uh, and to be um, available to people, to be approachable so that I can be an advocate for them in, in parliament. And what I would say is in this election, uh, I am, if Labour is returned to government, I am the only candidate that can guarantee Northland a seat at the table. And so um, I will be out there campaigning hard for every single vote and to earn that privilege to represent Northland and hopefully the next Labour-led government. Nga mihiki Thank you for your time this morning. That is Labour's Northland candidate, Willow Jean Prime. Let's bring in our panel this morning. Laila Hare is a unionist and former MP. Tohinare is a former New Zealand First and National MP and now Deputy Chair of the Independent Māori Statutory Board. Kia ora koura. Chief. Um, Lila, I'll start with you. What did you make of the poll result this morning? Uh, I don't think it was terribly surprising. Um, I am a little bit surprised at how far ahead Matt King is of his party vote, several percent. Mm. Um, not at all surprised that Shane Jones is really struggling on 15 percent, and I would have thought that will rapidly decrease to closer to the party vote that New Zealand First are are showing in the electorate at 7% um, because a good whack of that 15% are likely to be Labour voters who um, are, are splitting their vote at right. the moment, assuming he was a more viable candidate than he is. So I would expect Willow Jean's vote to go up, um, not necessarily to the level that allows her to win, but yeah. significantly over the next few weeks. What did you make of the numbers, Toad? Did you expect to see Shane Jones in third place? Yeah, absolutely. Um, like I tweeted yesterday, he's gone by morning tea, not by lunchtime. And 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 it's and the reason is is that it's 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 what happens if you campaign from your kitchen window. You know, Shane. Is, is not the best of campaigners. Great great uh, speaker, great orator, uh, great with the bluster, mm. um, great with a couple of billion dollars. Mm. But at the end of the day, when you're, when you're campaigning, go to the TABs, go to the markets, go to the pubs where people are. 
um, and 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 get that feedback. Feedback, and and I'm afraid on num a number of occasions he he hasn't shown uh, that 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 love of campaigning. There will be some New Zealand First voters watching this right now saying, well, of course Toe's going to say that. He doesn't feel very strongly about New Zealand First these days. But it's interesting you bring up the PGF. So um, just to break down the numbers of that $3 billion provincial growth fund, $557 million has been committed to projects in Northland. Do you agree with Matt King that when he, when he says that New Zealand First has essentially been trying to buy votes in Northland, Lila? Well... I think that New Zealand First have been trying to deliver to their constituency over the last three years and um, no doubt you know, there is huge need in Northland mm. and huge opportunity in Northland. It wouldn't surprise me that a kind of fair allocation of resources would see Northland prioritised. Um, and there's no doubt that New Zealand First have had a long-term commitment to that area. But, you know, I just think they're they're playing the wrong music for this election. They've been part of a government that has, you know, is enormously popular. Mm. Um, they have had, a, they've survived mm. for the first time a full coalition period without sort of major catastrophe. And yet they're heading off on this kind of confrontational, spoiler, nasty route, rumoured to be using the the Brexit boys. Or confirmed um, to be using the bad to, boys of Brexit. Yeah, yeah, for, yeah. Their, for their publicity. And it's all wrong. I mean, this was their opportunity mm. to ride the wave of the popularity of the current government. And instead, they're kind of in their walker you know, trying to get away from it and it's not working for them and in my view it's too late now for them to to pull that back. I think they're gone? I absolutely yeah. believe they're gone. Mm. What do you think, Toe? Are they gone? Oh yeah, Lila, Lila's absolutely right. I think New Zealand first are, are burnt. They're gone. Um, and regardless of, of, of how I personally feel, I'm a fan of the PGF. But why, you know, and this is a question for whoever's the government, mm. why is it that um, you wait for uh, New Zealand first to have the opportunity to build infrastructure in the, in the regions? Why can't you do it? Mm. Why can't you go and spend $500 million on the infrastructure of what I consider to be the jewel in the crown of New Zealand, Northland? Mm. You've got... You've got the greatest people up there, black, white, red and green, um, but we don't, we don't pay for it. We don't give them anything. Um, just look at the flood uh, last week or the week before last. A devastating again because there's no infrastructure, mm. because we keep forgetting about the local people. Yeah. And, it's not, and, and I don't blame um, um, New Zealand first. I blame National and I blame Labor. Um, you know, and, and for once we might get a government that says, hey, let's take what we've already done and double up, double up mm. and get Northland moving. But also Labor have been incredibly gracious towards New Zealand First over the, this last three years. I mean, they had a very solid regional development pro program of their own. Mm. I... You know, the fact they allowed that to be packaged up and sold as New Zealand First Provincial Growth Fund yeah. when it had 
total support from both other parties in the coalition sort of arrangement, I think has been enormously gracious. So with this you know, huge opportunity, New Zealand First have managed to blow it with vanity, um, with kind of curmudgeonliness, with a kind of a lack of character and I think this election is all about character. It's interesting to note though that the shift in the party support isn't it? I mean there's a significant increase for Labour as Willow Jean said I think it's the first time that Labour has been shown to be ahead yeah. in Northam. What do you put that down to Tyler? Um Well I mean it's consistent with the huge shift mm. in public feeling nationally um, and you know the only thing kind of that surprises me about Northland in particular is that Matt King is still significantly ahead of Nationalist Party vote in that area and I mean actually I thought his his responses to your questions they were straight they were um, categorical and I imagine he's got quite a good sort of rapport as he goes around campaigning he's clearly a campaigner and mm. that's gonna going to help him out in the electorate and probably help National get an overhang yeah well, maybe that's yeah. a that's a potential, right? Toad, what do you what do you put that shift in the party vote down to? I mean, it, it, is it the it's sort the of thing? Jacinda effect, right? And 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 I, I don't um, I'm not a fanboy of uh, the current prime minister, but um, I, I, I actually feel sorry for her um, in a you way. Feel sorry that, for Jacinda Ardern? Yeah, absolutely. She, you know, she's uh, she's first of all she's had to face Christchurch and deal with all of the falling out fallout of that. She's had White, White Island, yeah. uh, uh, Fakari. She's had the COVID. I mean, when is she going to get a chance to actually be a prime minister uh, that that um, uh, uh, rolls out a program um, about New Zealand without all of the other stuff that she's had, had to deal with? So well, I'm oh, sure actually, there will be some people oh, yeah, who look, say actually she's had three years to progress yeah, yeah, a domestic oh, agenda, and, and and the government on, hasn't been very hasn't lived up to its promises I think that's, on that. Front. I think that's a bit disingenuous, you know. And I, I, look, I'm not I'm no fanboy of of Labor, but quite frankly, um, uh, I, I, I actually give them a huge tick. Mm in terms of how they've handled three years of that sort of carry-on. It was interesting... Well, and, and use... I mean, those have been opportunities to repair damage that existed. I mean, look at the, the current situation. An enormous amount of what has been done in response to COVID is actually um, rebuilding mm. some basic systems, some basic public health systems, you know, improving um, infrastructure, dealing with a whole lot of stuff and yes we're talking about it in the context of the pandemic um, but whatever happens Labor are going to be leaving behind a much stronger um, state a much better prepared state and moving us you know it's in like a, when in you're playing, playing it's like playing 500 and you get the best hand it's called a lay down mazia and they just put it all down there you don't even have to count it game over you might as well go to the day after the election because Labor's going to win and quite frankly national are on uh, uh, I, 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 I'll tell you this for, for whatever it's worth um, that's probably nothing um, <laughs> but there's a real possibility that national could come home with no list MPs because they'll get 
they'll win all of their, well, may, the mo most right. of their electorate MPs. Yeah, it's interesting actually to look at the national list. I've got to ask you a couple of very quick questions before we move on. Um, the Nationals, of course, released its list. Fascinating to see um, the likes of Alfred Ngaro uh, Who? way, way <laughs> down the list. I mean, so National, I think, will need 44% of He's the He's been party trying to represent Tau and I for a very long yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean... Maureen uh, Pugh up to 19? Yeah, I know. She's a, she's a mm. mover and a shaker. Um, Auckland Central <laughs> is the other uh, other big seat that's going to be very interesting over the next six weeks or so. What are you expecting to see there, Lana? Um, I'm expecting to see momentum behind Chloe Swarbrick. Um, I'm expecting to see Labour as a whole kind of not um, giving her the nod. I mean, they've made that really clear. Mm. Um, but also not sort of actively at a national level pursuing winning back Auckland Central. Um, I'm expecting to see that national will probably select a candidate for the electorate, but we have point. no idea yeah, who or when or whether it's going to go to court afterwards. Um, and so, yeah, I think the momentum will be behind Chloe. Um, I think the seat is she can win the mm. seat. Um, and... I mean, if she doesn't win the seat, it doesn't really matter whether Labour or National mm. win it because it doesn't make any difference to the to the kind of the makeup the of equation. Parliament no. or the equation. Yeah. Okay, we've got to keep moving, guys. But thank you very much for your time and insights this morning, Laila Hare and Tohinari. Send us your thoughts. We're on Twitter at NZ Q and A. You can post on Facebook or email us Q and A at tvnz.co.nz. After the break, she's a top New Zealand scholar about to study for her second master's degree in her third language. But this Kiwi Uyghur wants help. I believe my brother is innocent. Kia ora Tefano, welcome back. China has drawn international condemnation for a campaign of oppression against its Muslim Uyghur population. Uyghurs in Xinjiang are constantly monitored and have been punished for expressing their faith, reading the Quran or growing beards. Now it's very difficult to get an accurate picture of what is happening on the ground, but it's possible more than a million Uyghurs have been detained in so-called re-education camps, where human rights groups say people are tortured. But now in this exclusive report, a Uyghur New Zealander is speaking out for the first time with a very personal story. Funny the things you take for granted in life. When Riz Nur Muhammad arrived in New Zealand 10 years ago, she'd never seen the ocean. I have to say that I have faced a lot of challenges, but I think eventually these challenges have uh, enabled me to grow. Riz came to do a master's degree, leaving her home in Xinjiang, far western China, for life in Mount Roskill. I have nothing to complain about living in New Zealand. Maybe except my house, it's quite cold. <laughs> but in the decades since she left her homeland, Xinjiang has changed. There's cameras in the streets, there's apps on cell phones. Um, Uyghur people have to carry ID, and if they don't, then they can be detained also. In recent years, China has developed an extraordinary system to control more than 12 million ethnic Uyghur people. Communications are monitored, facial recognition software tracks people's movement. Amnesty International alleges more than a million Uyghurs are being arbitrarily detained in so-called re-education concentration camps. Leaked images show Uyghur detainees shackled 
their heads shaved. Oh, I think the international community has been very weak on this. 27 nations, including New Zealand, so thank you, New Zealand, spoke out uh, earlier this year to, to highlight their concerns, not only with Xinjiang region, but also with Hong Kong. Um, I think the international community needs to step up its engagement and speak out where these human rights abuses and their grave human rights abuses are occurring. Are Uyghur people being persecuted because they're Muslim? Y yes, absolutely. And among those behind bars, is Rizna Muhammad's little brother. He was having his lunch during his lunch break, and then he was arrested without any explanation, nothing. In January 2017, Maulan Muhammad was eating at a restaurant when he was arrested by plainclothes policemen. The Chinese authorities offered no explanation as to why Maulan had been detained. Was there a trial? No. But a news report from that time says someone with Maulan's name, fitting his description, was arrested alongside five other men for having previously studied languages in Turkey, even though the report said there was no evidence any of them had committed a crime. After some period of time, he was taken to a concentration camp, and then he was taken to a prison, and then from prison, he was taken to a concentration camp, and then to prison. I don't know how many times it was repeated. Information obtained by a special United Nations unit for missing people shows Maulan Nur Muhammad was sentenced to nine years in detention by the Chinese authorities. The charge? Succession, splitting the Chinese state. Effectively it means whatever the Chinese government wants it, wants it to mean, but it must probably means that uh, many Uyghurs would like to have more autonomy. Well, those detention centres are places of ill-treatment and torture and they're places where people can be held for lengthy periods without access to the basics of life. Do you worry that he might have been tortured? I, I really can't think about, I mean, I can't even imagine it, you know. I try to stay positive. I try to not to think negative things, you know. This is Maulan? Yes. And this is his wife and this mm. is his young son. Mm. Maulan was a new father when he was taken. His son was just nine months old. The son is now four years old. He had four birthdays without his father. I believe my brother is innocent. And he is um, fully devoted his, himself to the work and the family life. He has nothing to do with politics, you know. He has, he does not possess any threat to the state. Nothing. Riz, you must, you must worry about him terribly. I do worry about him, and he's only my, he's the only brother I have, and my mom is an elderly lady. She cannot have another son. I don't know any cultures that say don't value families. I don't know. I mean, I would. Um, I don't know. Any culture does not value families. We all value families. My family is important for me. You know, they are vital part of my life. And they've been a missing part of Riz Nur Muhammad's life. Try the apricot. 
You're going to fatten me up. A few weeks after her brother's arrest, her mum in Xinjiang disappeared from social media. Riz could only watch a trickle of international news reports with no way to contact her immediate family. I have tried to do the right thing in the right way. So I approached UN, I approached Chinese embassy, I approached New Zealand government, but the process has been quite slow. So late last year, Riz Nur Muhammad decided to go public. She launched a petition with her brother's face and story and from Mount Roskill, of all places, a Uyghur New Zealander spoke out. As a Uyghur woman in New Zealand, do you feel safe? No, and yes, um, because, you know, the feeling of fear and insecurity, it, come, um, it comes because we are human beings. So I don't pretend that I don't have any fear, I don't have any feeling of insecurity. There have been fearful moments. Since starting the petition, Riz received several intimidating phone calls, which she reported to the Chinese embassy and the New Zealand police. But her bravery has brought about progress. With thousands of signatures in her online petition, out of nowhere, after three years' silence, Riz finally heard from her mum. She was just saying that, you know, how are you, how is everything, and uh, how was your eat. When she said to me, we can talk now, I actually didn't ask her why you didn't contact me for the last three years. I know personally that it is the case that our communication is monitored. That leads you to self-censor. Six weeks ago, more progress. Riz's mum said she'd had a short video chat with Mel Lan from inside prison. Riz's brother wasn't free, but he was still alive. If you were in my brother, I would do the same to help you because how can I see myself as a human being if I don't take any action? I have hope for him because his sister is so brave about speaking out about his case and raising his case. There is a risk in speaking to the media, but Riz won't talk about politics. She just wants her brother freed. My mum does not know that what I am doing here. He, she has no clue what I am doing here. And anyone who doubts her drive and capacity is making a terrible mistake. Rizwan Gul Nurmuhammad from Auckland. On Wednesday night in Wellington, half a world from Xinjiang, Rizna Muhammad took the stage at Parliament, awarded a 2020 Fulbright Scholarship. For the next two years, Riz will study public policy with Cornell University in New York, her second master's degree in her third language at one of the world's most prestigious institutions. I'm so happy to be the, one of the luckiest Kiwis to receive this award. It's funny what you take for granted in life. It might have taken more than 30 years for Rizna Muhammad to first see the ocean. But now she longs to see something even more basic. Someone, her only brother. Do you feel hopeful? I do what I can do. I am doing what I need to do. And um, following my faith where I put my trust in God. And, you know, my goal is to get my brother released and join with his family.
So I won't stop until I reach my goal. That is Rizna Mohammed. We have approached the Chinese embassy, but they haven't made any comment on Mel Lan's case. Riz says she's grateful for the help she's received from the New Zealand government, but she is desperate for her brother to be released. We will have a link to her online petition on our website and our Facebook page. All right, coming up on Q&A, former Prime Minister Jim Bolger on Judith Collins' chances in next month's election. And after the break, we're facing an economic crisis like no other, but one age group will be more affected than any other. The expert who says New Zealand's not ready. Hoki Mai, welcome back to Q&A. New Zealand isn't ready. That's the message from demographer Professor Paul Spoonley as he considers how our population will change in the coming decades. The baby boomers are ageing, young New Zealanders are having fewer children and our regions are declining. Professor Spoonley has just published this, The New New Zealand, and he's with us this morning. Tēnā welcome to Q&A. Tēnā Jack. So you write a book on the need for a new population plan and yep. then overnight our borders shut. Shut. <laughs> What did you think? <laughs> well, well I, I, I thought it was all safe and put to bed, as they say, and then COVID happened. So, you know, it's really important. It's going to impact upon our demography. So I rewrote. A large part of the book. Yes, I did. It, it must have been fascinating to, to, to look at the, the global response to COVID, yes. but New Zealand's response to COVID through a demographer's lens. What yep. has interested you the most over the last couple of months? I think it's the compliance of New Zealanders to do what the government has asked us to do. Mm. So when you look at those um, uh, Google Maps data, which shows how much we've done or not done, mm. New Zealand really does lead the pack in terms of complying with the government, literally double what you would expect in a country like the US. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because even when you consider the response in Melbourne and Victoria at the moment, where mm. people are significantly less compliant than New Zealanders yes. were, does that, does that speak to trust in our institutions, do you think? What, what does it speak to? I think it does. I mean, I, mm. think, I think we had the benefit of a Prime Minister who communicated particularly well. I think we had Ashley Bloomfield, who mm. we all venerate now. And I think the, the messaging was clear from the get-go. Whereas if you look at many other countries, the messaging was not clear. Mm. It varied about masks. Well, masks is probably a bad example in New Zealand. But it varied about in what you could and couldn't do. So I think we had a clear message. We had good communication. And I think New Zealand has responded. We still face a significant economic crisis. We do. Looking at the various different demographic groups, which groups do you think are going to be hardest hit by this next period? Uh, millennials. So, so the millennials first started coming into the labour market during the GFC, the global financial crisis. They've started to get over that, and we had a relatively good period coming out of that, and then bang, uh, COVID's hit. And what we talk about is labour market scarring. If you enter the labour market through an economic downturn, it's not an easy fix. Your experiences, your pay, your job prospects mm. simply don't recover that quickly. So you're scarred through quite a bit of your working life. What will that mean for, for millennials' lives? Uh, well, it, it will confirm some of the things I've talked about in the book, which is the comparison. I'm a boomer. I'm relatively wealthy. I will be much wealthier. My generation will be much wealthier than subsequent generations. Mm. And then millennials in particular, with student debt, the cost of housing, uh, the impact of the GFC now of COVID, are really going to be hit quite badly. And so they're going to face quite long periods of economic difficulties. Do millennials have a right then to feel as though they have been shortchanged by older generations? 
I think they do. I mean, I'm, I don't know about your household, but in our household, it certainly is a, a matter for, because um, I've got kids who, yeah. who, who feel very strongly that somehow, you know, the, the free welfare, the free health, the free education that I got is not available to them in the same way. Mm. And then you compound it. When I first bought a house, my house was double my annual salary. Here in Auckland, it's nine times mm. annual salary. So, you know, they feel as though they're uh, excluded from some of those um, wealth-creating opportunities that I had. Therefore, and, and I say this as someone who has contributed at yes. times in an editorial space to inflaming the generational debate, yes. is it useful or not useful to talk about those generational divides and whether or not one generation has it easier than another? Um, I think it's useful to talk about it in terms of some of our policy decisions. Right. So, for example, the ageing of the population, which, I, you know, I grew up in a community which had about 8% of its population aged mm. over 65, and quite soon New Zealand will see around a quarter of its total population aged over 65. The costs of that ageing population have to be met by somebody. And so millennials and other um, subsequent generations are going to have to meet that cost. So I think that intergenerational wealth transfer is an issue that we should be talking about. And I think it's reprehensible that no political party is talking about superannuation this election. Why aren't they talking about super? I think they're afraid. Because of the, the, the politics of the baby boomer generation mm. who are engaged in politics, who vote, and who make a difference in terms of um, uh, uh, success, election success, they're not prepared to antagonise that generation. See, that's interesting, though. They vote. That's the critical thing, isn't it? Younger people in New Zealand vote in significantly lower proportions than older generations for, for myriad reasons, no doubt. But, but yes. if, if younger people want to better their lot, don't they simply need to turn out at the, at the ballot box? Well, I think they need to have faith in the political system. Mm. And I do think there's a bit of a turning point. So in the last election, 2017, we did see, a particularly generated by an online uh, mobilisation, mm. we did see younger people voting in higher numbers. And this election is going to be very, very interesting to see what happens. But, but if, if, if politicians are motivated by the voting blocks, which have the most power on, on election day, surely yes. younger generations are going to have to wait until they reach a critical mass yes. to actually affect the change that might better their lives. They will. And I think there are two things that I'm going to be interested about in this election. Mm. One is how the, elect um, the parties are going to appeal to non-Parker, non-Māori New Zealanders. I think that's going to be very interesting. And the second is, when you look at the new voters who are voting for the first time, then you're seeing considerable numbers of younger voters who are beginning to look around and say, which political party is talking to us? You talk so you talked before about Chloe yeah. Warbrick and Auckland Central. Well, if you go by her election campaign when she was campaigning for the mayoralty, mm. she was super good at mobilising that younger vote. You talked about the ageing population. Do we need to be having more kids? Yes, we do, but there's no way of doing that. <laughs> if we go back to our earlier discussion, for example... Well, there is an easy way. <laughs> <laughs> but Yes, there is. But if we go back to our earlier discussion, yeah. we don't have evidence in New Zealand, but the evidence in Europe is that two-thirds of those who are at an age where they're deciding about having kids mm. have chosen to delay having kids or not to have kids at all. So it's that one and done or none effect. And so millennials are not having kids 
at anything like the rate of earlier generations mm. of New Zealanders. And there's no easy way to reverse that. Yeah, I mean, just by way of example, Tohenare was just giving me a hard time in the ad break. Yes. So I'm 33. Yes. By the time I was 33, I don't know if this is true or not, but knowing Toh it probably is, he said he had five kids. Yes. I have none. No. So my generation, if we got married, got married at 22. Yeah. If your generation get married, they get married in their early 30s, but at a two-thirds lower rate than my generation. So not only marriage, but delayed fertility. So most children mm. born last year were born to women in their 30s, mm. early 30s, and there were more children born to women over 40 than under 20. Where do you see migration going in the, in the coming years, and where should it go? Well, I, you know, it's come to a grinding halt. And I think, if, if just a bit of a history, Jack, I think mm. the, um, the previous national government and the GFC we only gained 35,000 people in five years. And in the next five years, 2013 to 18, we gained 330,000. Wow. So, you know, that's something that's been really significant for this country, mm. economically, socially, uh, culturally. Mm. And now it's come to a grinding halt. Australia's anticipating that um, net migration will ze virtually zero out. Um, but we're getting the returning New Zealanders, so I don't think we're going to zero out. Mm. But how do we resume migration? What's our policy going to look like? Because that's been huge in terms of our economic activity, mm. both good and bad, by the way, but also in terms of our population growth. Yeah, I mean, where should it be? Is there a magic number of, of migrants we should be welcoming to New Zealand? Every well, year? Canada, Australia, New Zealand have all notionally said 1% of the population. So for New Zealand, that would be around a net gain of 50,000. Mm. Last year it was 71,000, so we could peel it back a wee bit. Mm. And I think there will need to be some readjustment because mm. we're going to have a lot of New Zealanders who need retraining or are going to be out of work, and we don't want to privilege migrants over them. But if you look around the New Zealand economy in particular sectors, mm. man, are there sectors that are reliant on migrants? Elder yeah. care, IT, um, horticultural sectors. So, you know, what are those sectors going to do in the absence of major inward migration? It's interesting to consider the perspective of some Māori when you, when you consider the role migration plays in the modern yeah. New Zealand, isn't it? Because there's a real tension there. You know, a lot yes. of people, want, you know, a lot of Māori want to make sure we have protections for their status as tangata whenua. Yes. And net migration of 70,000 plus a year doesn't necessarily do that in their eyes. No, absolutely. And I did uh, Ranganui Walker's biography and Ranganui, mm. Ranganui always said, pull the drawbridge up. We don't want migrants. Mm. You know, because they do compete with us in the job market, their culture competes with our culture. So there is a something that needs to be resolved there. And what's interesting is that the Green Party have actually, in their immigration policy, have actually addressed it. So mm. they want iwi hapu, Māori involved in migration policy. And that's not been something that we've seen. Aside from writing must-read books, Thank uh, you. How, how do we facilitate a conversation around this? Because these are complex issues and people feel very passionately about them. They do, they are. And, and, and I think what, what, it, what frustrates me is we look backwards rather than forwards. Mm. So we know what New Zealand's going to look like in 2030. COVID will see some adjustments, but mm. we, we, can, we know what's going to happen. We should be anticipating that. But three-year election cycles do not encourage thinking over the medium and long term. Yeah, we're, we're, we're motivated by short-term incentives instead. We are. Okay. We are. Hey, thank you so much for your time. Thank As you, always, Jay. Professor thank Paul Spoonley. The New New Zealand is the professor's book.
After the break, former Prime Minister Jim Bolger with his bold prediction for digging ourselves out of debt. Why should we sort of live in poverty for the next 20 years trying to pay back something to ourselves? We've got to think bigger and different. Tēnā koutou, welcome back to Q&A. He describes himself as staunchly national, but former Prime Minister Jim Bolger isn't one to stick to orthodoxy. Now in his 80s, he's still fully engaged with the political challenges of today, many of which he talks about in his new book with journalist David Cohen. The book is called Fridays with Jim. Reporter Fina Owen visited him at home in Tekuiti ahead of the book's launch. Nationals Caucus Room 1986. It's upbeat and all Crown Lynn, pipe smoke and a new hope. Here he comes. Hello everybody. The first day of James Brendan Bolger's 11-year leadership of the National Party. The following year, David Longy's Labour Party was returned to power, but Bolger had made some gains. Over 30 years later, Team Bolger is now on the sidelines in another election year, hoping history won't repeat. This election has similarities with the 87 election. Nobody wanted to hear, uh, wanted to hear anything alternative because they were so happy making money, unbelievable amounts of money under the Douglas prescription. Until a month after the election, it all crashed. The panic was clear from the opening bell. I have a worry that come the end of this year, I mean, we are now printing money to keep afloat. I'm not arguing about that we shouldn't, but then I'm arguing that we should look at seriously writing most of that off. It's only owed to ourselves. Really? We have just created it in Wellington at the Reserve Bank. Why should we sort of live in poverty for the next 20 years trying to pay back something to ourselves? We've got to think bigger and different. And that's the message Jim Bolger wants to leave readers with. Fridays with Jim is the result of regular chats with writer David Cohen. Cohen was also curious, very little had been written about the former Prime Minister's beginnings. And that's probably understandable because uh, I didn't come from the leadership class, I didn't go to university, I barely went to high school. Jim Bolger's parents were from an area of Ireland hard hit by the famines of a century before. They came to Taranaki as farm labourers living among Māori communities. Years later, with some resistance from his own party, Jim Bolger's government advanced the treaty reparations process. I think this is where my Irish ancestry did help. I could empathise with the dispossessed people because I'd come from a dispossessed people as well. Jim Bolger arrived back in Wellington with a huge task ahead of him. Upon winning the election in 1990, the son of Irish immigrants announced intentions to loosen ties with the old empire. We should move with all due speed to declare ourselves an independent republic within the Commonwealth. And most people found that surprising and frightening. <laughs> Back to 2020, and he's recently watched two national leaders lose their jobs. In 1997, his caucus did the numbers on him when he was out of the country. I was advised the moment I stepped off the plane that the numbers had been gathered. I was disappointed that nobody had alerted me to the fact that that's what they wanted to do while I was at the other side of the world at the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting. So I didn't contest it. I just said, 
I will leave, I'll post myself to Washington as ambassador to Washington, and that's what happened. You did back Todd Muller. Yep. He, he worked for you yes. as leader. Yeah, it's very, very sad that uh, he had his uh, episode, whatever it was, and he had to give up the leadership, and I think that's very sad, but the good news is he's recovering and he'll be fine. Do you think they've made the right choice? I said when Judith um, became leader that uh, she was the person they had to move to, and they did move to her, and uh, I think she's uh, handling herself very well. How is Jacinda Ardern doing, do you think? Well, I think she's done magnificently on some of the issues. She has done very well leading New Zealand through the COVID-19 crisis, and uh, I don't think, you, you know, you can argue with little bits and pieces, but she hadn't put a foot wrong in doing that. But she hadn't delivered on some of the big promises she made. I mean, I think the classic is a capital gains tax, which is to make a fair society. And, and Jacinda, if she portrayed anything, was that she wanted to have a fair society. Mighty pleased to see you. Thank you. You've worked with Winston Peters mm -hmm. in coalition. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and I sacked Winston Peters. Uh, Winston's got many talents. And uh, I think he's been a successful foreign minister. But uh, Winston has the instinct to try and dominate. And, you know, if that's allowed, then he dominates. Fridays with Jim is a sort of conversational biography, but this is TV, and we had some quick questions. Polls. My, my approach to polls was not to comment on them. At all. T.Y. Point. Well, I think we should look seriously at using that surplus electricity in the South Island now when the T.Y. Point closes to produce green hydrogen. Climate change. What does distress me is the... Um, sort of virtue signalling that many on the green side of politics do. Though I'd say the best government for New Zealand would be a national green government, in my view. But the, uh, they like talking, seem like marching, but not doing. Superannuation, what should we do with that? Well, we've got to increase the age of eligibility. It's not complex. I don't know why we have such timid leaders now that won't touch some of these difficult things and, and hope they'll sort of vanish. You did really well. Yesterday's not going to return. We have to prepare ourselves, and the leaders have a responsibility to prepare the nation for a different tomorrow. That is Jim Bolger with reporter Fina Owen. Now, in the last few minutes, I have received a response from the Chinese embassy. This is with regards our story about Riz and Maulan Nur Muhammad. The person you mentioned was sentenced to nine years in prison for separatist activities by China's judicial authority in August 2017, says the representative from the embassy. He is now serving his sentence in Bay Prison. China is a country of rule of law where citizens' rights and legal rights and interests are protected and crimes punished in accordance with the law. All are equal before the law. There are several paragraphs re uh, relating to Xinjiang's current status in China, but one final line I will read you is this. Some people attempt to whitewash separatists in support of extremist activity and terrorism under the false flag of human rights and freedom. By doing so, it is condoning and encouraging those criminal activities. It is also an insult on and a travesty of human rights. We will make sure the full response from New Zealand's Chinese Embassy is available on onenewsnow.co.nz. Kua mutu. That is Q&A for this week. Thanks for watching. And nāmihi kia koutou ia koutou pānui. Thank you for your contributions. Thanks to the Q&A team. Marae's up next, so stick around. Hey te wiki. We'll see you next Sunday at 9 o'clock. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.